This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. My guest today is Dr. Ethel Mickey. Dr. Ethel Mickey is a sociologist of gender, work, and organizations with a focus on science and technology settings. She received her PhD from Northeastern University and is currently a postdoc at the University of Massachusetts Amherst with the NSF-funded UMass Advance Program. Her research broadly explores the persistence of intersectional inequalities through relational dynamics, including networks and collaborative teams. And she's currently working on a book manuscript on gendered and racialized networks in the tech sector. Her work has appeared in Gender and Society and the Journal of Contemporary Ethnography, and has been recognized by the American Sociological Association and Sociologists for Women in Society. Hi, Ethel. Hi. So, Ethel, I recently hosted a colleague of yours, Charla Allegria, on this podcast, and we spent a lot of time talking about inequality in the tech industry. Your research looks at STEM curricula and inequalities in the campus community in the context of STEM. Do you see a link or maybe multiple links between what happens on campus in the context of STEM and what happens in industry in the context of the workplace, particularly in tech? Yeah, so thanks for having me, and I'm so glad that I am following in the footsteps of Sharla, Dr. Allegria. Her work informs mine in so many ways, and so I study STEM from a couple of different angles. I study the private sector and tech companies, but I also study STEM within higher education and thinking about what's happening on universities, particularly for faculty, but also thinking about students too, in terms of inequalities, using an intersectional lens. And there are so many links between what happens on campus, but also in industry. One project that I'm working on now where looking at interview data of how faculty got to where they are. And so thinking about their pathways from being undergraduates to then deciding to pursue PhDs and and go to graduate school and, and stay and stick out their careers in STEM. So I'm working with a team at the University of Massachusetts with the advanced program. And this is all about uh, fostering equity and inclusion in STEM and really thinking about the structures and cultures of STEM that trickle in, not just in tech companies in the private sector, but also in higher education as well. There are a lot of parallels between the two contexts. And what are some of those parallels just to get that kind of right out? Yeah. And so thinking about the culture of STEM is, I think, something that is really prevalent across contexts. So this is a hyper-masculine space. We know that STEM fields are male-dominated in terms of just the representation. But if we look at the culture and sort of what are the values, what are the underlying norms, what are sort of the cultural repertoires needed to succeed in these fields, we see that they're they're often white and, and masculine. 
and sort of who is celebrated as being a good fit for these kinds of jobs or these kinds of skills. The picture that usually comes to mind is a white or Asian man. And so, you know, there's one study that I love by folks out of Stanford, a colleague of mine, Allison Wynn, who looks at the recruiting sessions of tech companies when they go to universities and they're trying to recruit undergraduates and they're trying to pitch their companies so that the undergraduates will apply for jobs there and that they can hire them. And the presentations given by these tech companies just constantly refer to athletes or gaming references, things that tend to be these hyper-masculine and also sexualized um, spaces that really excite the men in the room and the men want to apply, but women undergraduates are, you know, a little bit more reluctant based on just how these companies are pitching themselves. And so there's definitely this thread, this common culture that we see happening both in university, but also in these company settings. And just to push on that a little bit, is it the presentation of the jobs? Is it saying that, for example, this is the culture of the workplace here or the terminology being terms that are really kind of associated with things that have anchors in masculine culture? Or is it the jobs themselves? Is it the function of the jobs? It's such a great question. So I think it's both. And I'll start with sort of the function of the jobs themselves, like what skills are required. If you look at job descriptions, you know, and you, you're going down the list, it's okay, certain computing skills, familiarity with certain software. We tend to think of these as more masculine skills that boys are just inherently better or more interested in these types of math and logic based skills that are part of job descriptions. But increasingly what we're seeing, and you know, it's in tech, but it's in other fields too, is this reliance on the idea of who's a good cultural fit to be hired. And so when companies are pitching themselves in terms of these are our values, here's what we like to do for team outings and how we get to know one another, a lot of times these center around activities that are male historically have been male dominated. And you know, I think that's the interesting part about tech and computing jobs is that in fact, it was women who were in these jobs to begin with in the U.S. if we look way back. Until they started becoming economically uh, lucrative. Exactly. So this is a relatively new phenomenon. And so now we have this lens where we think of these jobs as more you know, masculine spaces, but that was not always the case. I know that causal explanations are sort of dangerous. And by causal explanations, I mean saying that this thing causes this other thing to happen. And I know that that's a kind of dangerous dangerous interpretive claim to make about data. But but do you see causal links between STEM culture on campus and the way that the industry builds in that culture? Like, is it that the industry is building its own culture out of a culture that's established by those who are apprenticing into that new workforce? Or do you think that the way that students or the next generation of technologists learn and think on college campuses has an impact on the culture of the workplace in the industry. So which one is it? Which is the chicken and the egg here? What do you think happens? Is it the workplace culture that projects itself on STEM or the other way around? So my answer is probably going to be deeply unsatisfying, but I do think it's both. I think of these 
kind of spaces as mutually reinforcing. In sociology of gender, there's this idea of the ideal worker. And I was, you know, have been talking around this, but who, when we think of a job, is the ideal fit? And this comes from, you know, how we structure the workday. If we think at like the most basic level, like why do we have a, a nine to five workday? And and this idea that workers have no responsibilities outside of the workplace, that we are just, you know, fully committed to working 40 hours a week. Well, that's someone who has no family or child rearing obligations, no care work to their communities. And so this is a cultural norm that's become embedded in the way we structure our workplaces. And so in that sense, we could kind of see how the workplace then will influence, okay, well, then who is going to apply for certain kinds of jobs? Who feels like that they can, you know, make these, and in tech work, it's often way more than 40 hours per week, can make these demands work and fit these norms of the ideal worker. Um, But I do think that who is entering these jobs also have the potential to change the workplace too. And I think we've been seeing that in really interesting ways in the past 18 months or so with the next generation of college graduates really pushing tech companies to be thinking about anti-racism, to be thinking about supporting the movement for Black lives in ways that aren't just window dressing, but that are deeply rooted in institutional commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and holding their employers accountable in ways that you know we've seen here and there throughout U.S. history, but never to this extent. And so I do, I do have hope that you know there is a two-way street here, where that the workers themselves, the new generation of workers, have the potential to to make some important shifts. And you know, it's interesting because a lot of the things you're saying here, I think, are true in tech. I see it in tech, but I also see it more expansively across multiple industries. Is there something unique about STEM or the tech industry that develops inequalities? Is there something specifically about the tech industry culture that maybe has underrepresented the kinds of calls for social justice that you're talking about and such that now they're more prevalent? I mean, I see a lot of inequalities across multiple workforces that I've been a part of. Uh, in business, in film. I see them even in my home base in the humanities and academia. What makes STEM or tech unique or different? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, you know, when I think about sort of the origins of why I wanted to study tech or STEM fields more broadly, it's in many ways because it's a trendsetter for other industries. So the tech industry as sort of the hub of innovation in the U.S. economy will often experiment with new work practices, new organizational forms, new policies. And so what we tend to see is that the practices from tech will often trickle into and influence other spaces. So this makes it a crucial site for research. And I definitely think there are some parallels in terms of the patterns of inequalities in other white male-dominated spaces, like you mentioned business or film. But what's unique about tech 
is this combination of the spaces being male dominated. So the representation, over-representation of men relative to women, people of color, and also what we perceive as that inherent masculinity of the jobs and skill sets that I've been talking about. So what's required to do the work. Um, And so I think this combination kind of presents like this really bad whirlwind where we just know that these places have become really bad places for women and BIPOC folks to work. You know, it's interesting. The more that I talk to folks in tech, especially in the lines of this podcast, the more I see that what we're talking about when we talk about inequality in tech is as much a part of the kind of broader infrastructure that sustains the tech industry than it is, you know, specifically tech firms. It's not just about the startup and work and the engineering in the startup. It's also about the way that venture capital seeds certain startups, that it creates certain expectations of the industry, that it is responsible for cultivating certain potential leaders uh, and endorsing certain potential leaders, much along the lines of the ideal worker that you're talking about here. I mean, I had one person who I was talking to on the podcast say that he, as a venture capitalist, so he looks for the good story. He looks for for the movie and he says, well, what does the movie look like? Well, you have a kind of usually a white male who has been to a prestigious university has maybe overcome some hardship or taken some unusual path within that uh, Harvard or Stanford uh, trajectory and has a kind of, you know, uh, understated charisma of the kind of iconic variety that we're now familiar with and Zuckerberg's and the jobs. Um, but I guess my question here is, are, are there particular features of the tech industry economy Beyond the industry itself, I'm thinking, for example, venture capital here, you know, as responsible for creating the culture uh, that that tech uh, lives in, that you would pin as being particularly impactful in manifesting inequality? Let's zoom out for a second and think about what's the big picture beyond just these bad egg companies or individuals who might be biased and thinking about what's what's going on in tech big picture. And you know, one thing that really comes to mind is the volatile nature of the tech industry. And I mean this in a couple of different ways. So first, we have the sort of volatile nature of the organizations themselves. So you mentioned venture capital, right? So we usually start as startups and they're seeking out funding and the end goal is to get that funding and and sort of the golden ticket is when companies often go public and become public firms. And so along the way of that sort of trajectory of organizations and companies, there's a lot of shifts and transitions that happen, a lot of jumbling of leadership, some old policies that have to adapt to meet new economic and legal conditions. And so it's also, it just, a, it's, it can be a really volatile industry in terms of what does the organizational makeup look like. But it's also volatile in terms of the job turnover itself. And so there's a term, the high velocity labor market of tech. And I I just like that image of, you know, this constant sort of cycling and churning of workers uh, in this economy where 
highly skilled engineers never feel fully secure in their work. You know, they're either constantly looking for the next thing or they're not sure if their company is going to get that VC funding. And so they might need to look for a job if they're laid off in a few months. And so it's sort of this constant precarity or uncertainty uh, that underlies the tech industry that that really shapes how people are hiring, how people are looking for jobs. There's a lot more informal hiring and reliance on networks um, that happens in the tech sector. And and a piece of my work looks at that. And so I think it's all just sort of related to this. You know, it's the high risk, high reward. When you're innovating, you're taking huge risks. And these entrepreneurs are taking huge risks with the hopes of high rewards. But there's often some, some byproduct along the way. Can you give us a specific case of a company or Uh, experience that highlights the kinds of inequalities that you're talking about here? Yeah. So in our field of sociology, we really work to protect the identities of the organizations and the people we study. But I can definitely talk about the company I studied. I call it Data Inc. Um, It's a pseudonym, but it really exemplifies some of the trends that I um, have been talking about, but I think, you know, could be sort of mapped onto what we see in other tech companies. And so Data Inc. shifted. I started my project. I was in the company interviewing and interviewing employees and observing meetings and sort of informal gatherings um, for almost a year. And it had just transitioned from a startup to a public firm. And what I found were that there were these conflicting logics within the organization. And so what do I mean by logics? Logics are underlying organizations as sort of the taken for granted systems of rules, policies, job descriptions, how evaluations happen, really the things that govern organizations that it's how they operate, but yet at the same time can reproduce inequalities. And so as this company, Data Inc., went public, what happened was the sort of startup flexible all hands on deck logic conflicted now with a very strict bureaucracy. And so as Data Inc. went public and we see it start to kind of formalize, it has all of these external agents that they have to report to. This I noticed was a highly gendered process. And so women all of a sudden were shuffled into more low status jobs with uh, pretty narrow job descriptions. And at the same time, the company rewarded visibility and self-promotion. And so women that I talked to really felt stuck because despite their best efforts to promote themselves within the firm, to network, to try to get on high status projects, they really felt like they were in these roles that didn't allow them that visibility that they needed. Whereas men, on the other hand, told stories where they just sort of moved up the ladder gradually getting promotions without really ever inquiring or asking about it. And so it's sort of this collision of organizational expectations and women by just doing their jobs and kind of keeping their head down and and trying to do their best within the roles they've been shuffled into throughout this process 
still hit a glass ceiling or still are unable to tap into the the same networks that have status and power on par with men. Let's talk about those networks here. A while back, this is something that I continue to talk about because I found it so interesting. I had the CEO of a company called Hire Club on the show. I asked him what he thought the biggest mistake that undergraduates going into their uh, first career attempt make as they apply for that first job. You know what he said? He said, applying for the job. Now, why is applying for the job a mistake? Because hiring doesn't happen when you submit your resume into a you know, a resume bank and AI reads your resume and then matches you up with experience. Maybe that happens sometimes, but especially for the good jobs, it happens because you know somebody in the organization or in the company who can vouch for you. And the way he described it, he says, hiring happens on the principle of trust. You trust somebody's reference and their opinion and their comment, hey, you know, I know this person, I know this job, they're going to be a good fit for this job, much more than they trust uh, the resume. Now, of course, trust can also be built up by things like the name of a high profile school on your resume as well. That's a form of recommendation. But trust is, I think, built through those social networks. It's somebody recommending you, you belonging to a network. And networks are conduits for pipelines or for jobs. I know your work is critical of this trajectory. So what's your critique? Well, I don't disagree that this is how hiring happens, at least for some people. And so in my work, and you know, not to oversimplify, but the, the majority groups, men and white employees, tended to tell me stories of getting jobs without applying for them. Or one man I distinctly remember told me he had a bar stool interview where, you know, he met a friend at a bar and a few days later had an opportunity come via email in ways that were much less formal than sort of women's approach to job searching. And so I do think that this is this more informal hiring is happening in tech um, and in other spaces. It's definitely driven by companies incentivizing referrals for hires, for new hires. Um, and that's where if you you know refer a friend to work at your company and they end up getting hired, you get a referral bonus and it can be quite substantial. And so that this means that a lot of these companies, people are just constantly recommending people they know. So I think the critique more from my work is how do we conceptualize trust? And so if trust is key into how folks are getting jobs, then we need to unpack who do we trust and why. And oftentimes it's about familiarity and sameness. And, you know, we'll hear it all the time that, you know, I'm really comfortable working with this person or this collaboration went well because we come from the same background. And the research shows that that's that's true, that people who come from similar backgrounds, if they're working on teams together, there's less conflict. um, There's less sort of that explaining that has to happen from the beginning. It's sort of this mutual understanding of this is how we are going to work together. But what that means is that this familiarity reproduces the same kind of people being hired. And if we think about networks, if if companies are just using their employees, their current employees' networks, then they're going to have folks who went to the same colleges, who grew up in the same neighborhoods, who perhaps their parents are friends and family friends. And so the network, in fact, becomes quite small. Um, and in sort of network theory, we call this homophilus, that there's homophily or sameness happening in the networks. And so my work really is trying to 
just sort of point out that these organizational practices around hiring or, you know, around recruiting, around even just forming teams, any sort of mechanism where personal recommendations are involved, uh, there just needs to be some transparency and some, you know, mindfulness about the equity implications there. I mean, for me, I think about the fact that if the people who are funding organizations are of the same background as the, because they trust people who are similar, the people who are hired or who are, you know, then creating companies or have the opportunity to develop companies are the same people as the people who finance them. They hire the same people who are like them. And that kind of becomes the entire infrastructure of an organization. It becomes almost impossible for historically underrepresented communities to enter into that network because the network reproduces itself. It hires people who are already in the pipeline, further creating, I think, distance between people who are in the industry and people who don't have access to those networks. You know, I guess this is a lead into my next question, which has to do with a kind of current attempt, especially in corporate network programs that are designed to um, improve organizational diversity and the status of women and minorities in particular, and really kind of trying to maybe make a intervention into those those pipelines. And you've argued that actually these intended, I think, well-intentioned pipelines oftentimes result in unintended consequences. What are those unintended consequences? What do those programs attempt to do and what goes wrong? Yeah, so a big part of my research has been attending and participating in a lot of these corporate networking events conferences. Certain companies have their own programs. Like we know Google and Facebook have their own networks or groups for women and BIPOC workers that are more internal support networks. And so these are super well-intentioned in that, you know, we know that these underrepresented and historically marginalized groups of workers are socially isolated. And that you know they need communities they need support and mentorship in order to survive and again that idea of familiarity comes up right and here it's sort of flipped on its head where it's like okay this familiarity can be really crucial in bonding over shared experiences or you know debriefing discrimination that's happening and trying to figure out strategies to move forward having networks of folks who have had those similar experiences can be really validating and, and empowering. At the same time, so what I've found with these, these sort of corporate groups, uh, especially for women and minorities, is in some ways the segregation from those with status and power, being white men in this case, does little to advance the careers of the women. And so there are benefits from being in a women's only group, for example, but what's missing? What's missing are the opportunities to network and connect with those who might give you a job, might put you on a new project or refer you to their friend who owns a company or a VC fund. And so there's a lot of sort of networking happening 
in circles that are very uh, similar in terms of of levels of authority and and access to resources. So it's it's not they're not necessarily a stepping stone in this field. But the other critique, and one that I think is is perhaps a little more interesting, is that I found that these spaces also reproduce boundaries amongst the women themselves. And so it's an easy sort of trope to say like, okay, it's women over here and men over here. But a lot of really excellent scholarship in the sociology of gender have have shown that the differences amongst women are actually at times more problematic. And so if we think about what about, let's compare white women to BIPOC women. Let's compare even, you know, class can come into this. Let's think about a first generation college student who is just starting a tech career versus someone who has graduated from an elite Ivy League school whose parents, you know, have PhDs, right? So there's uh, boundaries there amongst women. We can think about immigration status. We can think about sexuality. And these tend to be very heteronormative spaces as well. And thinking about what does work-life balance look like? And oftentimes it means juggling a heterosexual partner and kids. And, And that's not the family norm for a lot of women. And so in the ways in which these groups and programs kind of message themselves and market themselves to the very content that's going on in these spaces, what I what I do find is that the, there's sort of this normalization of a certain type of woman or a certain type of femininity that can be really exclusionary for, for other groups. And the big question is how do we fix or change the network or pipeline problem? Yes, this is the big question. And as a sociologist, it's such a cop-out, but we are so much less likely to have the tools to offer solutions, but I will do my best. And I often draw on Dr. Shelley Carell's small wins approach. And so she's at Stanford and she works very closely with a lot of tech firms in the Valley. And this idea of small wins, I really like because at the individual level, I think we all can kind of get it. And there are these small adjustments that can have really big payoffs in organizations. So they're concrete and you can implement them, but they're often non-threatening because they're small. So it's not like you're going to come into your your organization and say, I'm going to upheave everything and change everything, but really thinking about small, actionable steps that improve equity and inclusion, but that maybe the naysayers, they either won't notice that they're about equity and inclusion Or they're just so subtle that it's not really worth putting up a fight for. And there's a really famous example now by an economist, Dr. Claudia Golden, who she studied symphony orchestra musicians and how they were evaluated and selected to be a part of some of the top orchestras in the U.S., and they did this experiment because these these spaces are also male dominated. And in their experiment, they just decided to put a curtain up in front of the person performing. And so you couldn't see who was auditioning. You could only hear the music, which in an ideal world is all we would base our judgments on. And they found that just adding that curtain greatly improved the number of women being added into and being hired to work and perform in these orchestras. And so something as simple as a curtain, the idea doesn't translate literally in the tech setting, but just to think about 
you know, a curtain is very non-threatening. So how can we implement something similar in STEM? And so this might be in hiring if there's sort of a rubric of different characteristics or qualities, skills that are listed and they're weighted. Maybe the weight that's added to personality or cultural fit can be reduced um, to sort of give a nod to the gendered or racialized class-based biases that might be built in. So, okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second here, because the thought that comes up is, you know, there are a lot of women-dominated companies. I think, for example, of Spanx, where I actually can see that cultural fit might be pretty significant. And to kind of further progress down this avenue of thinking in terms of playing devil's advocate, I also think that one of the things that the Spanx example gives us is an example of somebody in the tech infrastructure, which again, I'm kind of largening the scope of to include things like venture capital, whose idea was summarily dismissed over and over and over again because the male venture capitalists couldn't understand how valuable the problem that she was trying to solve was. But, you know, she finally gets to a female venture capitalist who says, oh my God, this is a valuable problem. If you solve this problem, you will be solving this problem for a large segment of the population who has been seeking solutions to this problem. So I take the point about the symphony and the blind orchestra, but I wonder how far the analogy can transition into the scope that we're working with here, particularly because there might be the case in symphonies. I'm not a musician. I am not a musical theorist either. I'm not a musical historian. So I, it might be the case that all of our music is gendered as well, and that we're working in an ecosystem of, of gendered music, and that perhaps a history of music that followed a female lineage would look completely different. But in tech, we are, I think, certainly dealing with a history of technological innovations that follow the point of view and seek to solve the problems of a particular segment of the population, which, which tends to be white male and uh, located in kind of cosmopolitan space. Places such as Silicon Valley. And I think that the symphony example with the gender blind curtain elides over the fact that what tech I think ought to be responding to right now is perhaps the need to make identity based decisions about including perspectives into the context. Not by the way, sometimes this is just talked about as a morally good ends, but I think that if we think about uh, even as, as a value proposition in terms of the generation of, of capital, which is what these tech firms I think are interested in, we need to be thinking in terms of increasing the diversity for precisely that reason. But but maybe I'm off base. What's, what's your thought? No, I mean, I think these are all really interesting and provocative points. And so it reminds me of what I said initially about familiarity in some ways can be can be really valuable, right? So if a woman is the consumer or, or the woman is the intended consumer, right? But also the the funder of of any sort of product, you know, having that that alignment where the, the need can be recognized, you know, that that makes sense, right? Like the, there's something in sync there where it doesn't need to be explained. Um, and I think I think in any any instance where we can kind of unpack who's producing not only our tech products, our softwares, our hardwares, but even at the more fundamental level, like 
who is producing knowledge and creating innovation in our society. And, you know, it's pretty well known at this point that diverse teams tend to be more innovative. Innovation of ideas is when people who are from different backgrounds get around a table and can kind of have those those exchanges. So like, how do we get there? And how do we move towards that? It's not just about improving the bottom line, but it's also about social justice and thinking about how do we go a step further than that, which is what you're sort of, you're driving us towards where we are serving those who have been underserved by these products and by these technologies and thinking about, you know, certain community engaged tech, right? Emancipatory innovation is something that I think could be like the ultimate goal. I just think, I think we have a lot of work to do to get there. What role, since I come out of the university context, and I'm trying to think about this as are you uh, as well in terms of the trajectory from university to uh, industry, what role can universities play? It's really interesting though. The role I'm in now with UMass and the advanced program, the advanced program is funded by the National Science Foundation to implement institutional transformation at universities. And so we are studying our university and we are simultaneously trying to implement practices to move the institution towards equity and inclusion for women and people of color in STEM. And so it's a really cool moment where it's like the research we're doing is simultaneously affecting policy change, procedural adjustments. And, and as an academic, as you probably know, it's that's not often the case. You know, you feel like your research matters and you get it out in a journal, but you don't see the change happening right away. And so in thinking about you know, not every university has this opportunity to sort of self-reflect and think about um, how can we transform ourselves. But I think a huge part of this is data collection. And it's the social scientist in me, but thinking about that people within their organizations and their institutions within the universities, right, they know their context best. And so asking people through interviews or focus groups or collecting climate surveys and figuring out, you know, where are the inequities happening? And then how can we adjust our culture? How can we adjust our evaluation processes to sort of then account for and hopefully improve those inequities? So I think data collection is is a piece of it. And I think leadership here is where was where leadership really matters. And so having transparent communication between leaders and and other parties on campus, whether it's faculty or students, you know, when there are changes happening, really clearly communicating what are the motivations behind this change? Have they thought about you know, how equity matters or what what do they expect the outcomes to be and what are they going to do if, if un- unintended consequences arise? So I guess data and then communication from, from leadership. Are you drawing a link between organizational style and management on college campuses and the link between that and the tech industry? And if so, could you be a little bit more explicit about how you see that link? Yeah, I think that that what we're learning in the context of universities with the research I'm doing now can definitely translate beyond higher education. And and so we focus on STEM and higher ed. But as we sort of opened our conversation with, there are a lot of parallels in terms of the culture of these of these fields, but also the structures too, and thinking about how folks are evaluated. You know, higher education in some ways is this unique little animal with how folks are recruited and so forth. So it's it's not a perfect parallel, 
but in thinking about, you know, universities as real centers of, of innovation and knowledge production, how can they use their resources being oftentimes the researchers themselves that are on these campuses to set models around equity and inclusion. I think that's sort of like a challenge that higher education can rise to meet. I mean, the other thing that we do in higher education is, of course, teach the next generation of technologists and the next generation of humanists. So what would teaching along the lines of a better kind of organizational culture or a better trajectory or or model for tech look like? How should we be teaching? So I taught this really wonderful class, Technology and Society, when I was teaching at Wellesley College out here in Massachusetts. And and the fun part for me there was that it was a really interdisciplinary group and that it was a lot of computer science majors, some engineers, some math majors, some who were pre-med. It wasn't wasn't just sociology students that which is normally who who enroll in my classes and I think the class really presented an opportunity for them to think critically about the types of jobs they were about to enter and so it was less learning the skill sets but thinking historically about how their industries came about but then thinking about the ethical implications of the very products that they would be working to build, to thinking about the inequities that might occur, the discrimination, inequalities within the companies. These were all the sorts of like questions and topics that we covered in the class. And, and I just really always enjoyed seeing students start to just kind of use what we were learning to reflect on, on how this would impact them and their future careers. And I think that that's Really, all we can do as educators is get is get our students to think using different lenses. And, and so if you're coming from a STEM background as and you're majoring in engineering or computer science, I would encourage you to take some social science courses. Maybe it's women and gender studies. Maybe it's a course in communications or political science, uh, something that is still relevant to your work and what you want to do, but helps you sort of challenge and ask these questions about why things are the way they are. How did we get here and where are we going? And to have sort of the space to reflect with peers and with faculty in the classroom, I think I think that would be my greatest sort of hope. I wonder if you could kind of uh, thread the needle here and, and share why you think that this kind of teaching or exploration or educational kind of complexity might change the structure of the pipeline problem. What I like to think is that the students who are pursuing STEM careers If they are equipped with a toolkit to challenge the status quo or to be even just mindful that inequities exist and that these inequities are structural, that these aren't necessarily individual problems. It's not that you as a woman engineer, you are not good enough, but these are patterned things that we are seeing happening across the country across the globe, I think that that could be really empowering to know that, you know, it's not about blaming ourselves. It's not that women are deficient and that's why we're dropping out of the pipeline. It's more that the organizations, the structures, the cultures that we're operating within have some real problems. And so I think that having that knowledge and being equipped with that knowledge, it allows young people to, to approach their workplaces 
their colleagues, their managers in very different directions and in different ways. I, I don't want it to sound like it's only up to them to fix our problems, but I think even just, you know, feeling there are the there are ways to articulate sort of some of these problems in a way that is accessible um, and sort of non-threatening can be, I think, a real a real skill set and tool. I wanted to ask one last question about the pipeline before uh, we talk a little bit more about our moment. When I talk about the pipeline problem, sometimes I get pushback from people who resist that term itself, pipeline. Do you have a sense of why the metaphor of the pipeline is sticky as a term or for a way of thinking about an issue? Or do you share that critique? Yeah, so I sort of I sort of started talking about this in in my previous answer and thinking about, you know, it's not the woman's fault or the racial minority's fault for dropping out of the pipeline. And I think that's a lot of times this critique of the pipeline problem comes from the sense that the metaphor implies that folks are just dropping or dripping out of the pipeline um, and there's less blame or sort of accountability, I guess is the right word, on the institution of STEM itself. Um, I think the other piece of this is that there's not just one pipeline into STEM careers. So it's sort of the metaphor implies to me, like if you do all the right things, then you'll get the dream job. And if you drop out of a pipeline at any sort of point along the way, you can return at any time. You can come back into the pipeline. You know, perhaps you start pursuing a master's degree, but then something happens in your life that, you know, you can't, you can't just finish your degree at that time. You could work at more of an entry-level job and then go back and get your master's degree and come back into STEM later. And so I think, you know, Anna Branch, she used to be at the University of Massachusetts and she talked a lot about pathways and potholes, that there are various pathways into STEM careers and there are potholes along the way. And a pothole, if you, you know, you drive over a pothole, you're in less trouble than if you fall out of the pipeline. And so um, it's sort of, uh, I guess, more encouraging in the sense that, and also more inclusive of these diverse uh, trajectories that can happen in STEM careers. I want to turn now and talk a little bit about our moment right now. I'll date the podcast a little bit by saying that we are at what I think and many hope to be the end of the COVID pandemic, at least for many of us in the United States, as folks are returning to their jobs, as things are reopening, and as we can, I think, start now to look back at the kind of shocks and aftershocks of what we have just been through here. Many people have cited this pandemic for exposing several inequalities that have already existed. And I don't know the exact statistic, but I do know that in the aftermath, what we are seeing is that a large proportion of women have left the workforce. Many people are looking at and framing this as a major shockwave that may be in some senses irreversible or at least permanent for a very long period of time. What's your take on what's going on and how is this playing out in the tech sector? Well, gosh, I really hope it's not irreversible. <laughs> and I think a lot of the work that I've been collaborating with my colleagues on in the last year, 18 months or so, has been to sort of ensure and put guardrails in place so that these trends are not irreversible um, and that we can get back on, on track here if and hopefully get back on track in a way that is even better than, than where we started from. And 
you know, the pandemic, I think, in a lot of ways, just like ripped open all of these inequalities that already existed. So, you know, I think a lot of this and thinking about gender is about care work. And these were inequalities that existed for women before the pandemic, where we knew women were doing more care work in their families. They were doing more care work in their communities, especially women of color, and also more care work in the workplace. And if we think about who does sort of the service work or institutional kind of housekeeping, that all of this was was disproportionately done by women. And now what we see with the pandemic, it just shifted the context within which these inequalities are occurring. And so the context being there have been no in-person schools or daycare centers. There have been no access to labs or work sites or performance venues for a lot of the work I do is is for faculty. So thinking about what faculty need in the pandemic, but this is happening to folks, of course, across sectors that the workplace drastically shifted. So these two major institutions that we operate within, our families and our workplaces, completely shifted overnight. And then at the same time, there's been this reinvigorated reckoning around racial justice, around uh, the movement for Black lives. So the, the sort of layer of complexity on this is for Black people, for the AAPI community that are also dealing with trauma, grief, loss. You know, there's just been sort of this added layer of community engagement, but also of really emotional labor that's happening too. And so these inequalities were there. The pandemic, I think, shed a light, a big spotlight on what was there. Um, And so now we're just, we're trying to figure out how do we support those who have been the most deeply impacted by the pandemic to move us yeah, towards a better future. I think we probably only have time for one or two last questions. So I, I want to ask questions that deal both with the industry and with students in terms of recommendations. I think as uh, as academics, our tendency sometimes is to point out problems and to be critical of problems that perhaps other people don't see. It's much more challenging, I think, to offer solutions, but nonetheless, I will task you with this challenge. Sometimes when I when I present my critique or explanation of problems I see in the tech industry, the industry leaders I speak to are sympathetic and receptive to my critique, but they ask me, given the critiques, what they should actually do. Given your research and your expertise, what would you advise companies to do to promote equality, particularly, but not exclusively gender equality. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is really important. And it's also important to note that the tech industry, for all its problems, there are some really ethical and good people working in these companies and working in the industry who want to do better and are committed to do better. So if we can have the opportunity to provide recommendations, I think that that's really important. You know, I I already mentioned the emphasis on collecting internal data. I think that that data can really be super informative for thinking about at the local level, what are some 
problems that need to be addressed. I would suggest to leaders also to examine policies with an eye towards equity. So these we've talked about hiring and the role of networks and informal hiring. Um, we've talked about corporate diversity programs, all sorts of policies that could be sort of examined and addressed, including how they're implemented. Because companies oftentimes, they'll start a new policy, but then we know that that how that actually happens on the ground, how it's implemented, how it plays out, looks very different than how it's written in some handbook, right? So it, it really matters how these policies are implemented too. And then, you know, there's some really excellent research on how to improve diverse representation and management, uh, both in tech, but in other industries. And, and what the research really shows is that diversity trainings and trainings about bias don't really work as effectively as do efforts that uh, establish responsibility for diversity. So having a manager tasked with improving diversity, or perhaps it's someone at the C-suite level who is tasked with employee engagement and inclusion, having you know that sort of responsibility can really lead to the broadest increases in diverse representation. You know, establishing groups and networks that we've talked a lot about today to overcome that isolation that women will experience do have moderate effects. And so what I really suggest based on my work is that these groups need to be really intentional about being inclusive, thinking about which women are benefiting from these groups and these networks and which women feel excluded. And so and so establishing this responsibility, being mindful about equity, And talking to the people that you employ and hearing what's going on from them, I think is is the best is the best sort of strategies I have in my back pocket. (laughs) There's one group that we haven't talked about yet, and I'm curious what you what you think of this. My invitation to Women Hack 2021 just came into my inbox right before we started. Women Hack is, as they describe it, a recruiting event, one of a kind opportunity to meet 15 to 20 top companies in just two hours. Their mission statement is connecting, I think, with the idea of creating a pipeline, uh, women to these, uh, these job opportunities. How should we think about the infrastructure or maybe the pipeline of women-specific organizations like Women Hack or the kinds of organizations I see popping up that are attempting to intervene into this discourse? Are they part of the corporate structure? Are they part of a kind of like a nonprofit entity? How should we think about them and their role and, and what's your take on their effectiveness? Yeah, you know, I hate to generalize because in my work, I've seen a whole mixed bag of organizations that are independently run and, you know, progressive and critical of the systems and and really attempt to be inclusive of of the most marginalized groups in tech. And then there are those that those other groups that are sort of just another leg of the corporations that they are employed by and you know have less opportunities or sort of wiggle room to to be to be critical because they're employed by the you know very folks funding their groups and so i don't think that there's a one size fits all approach to to these women's networks or women's groups i'm not i don't want to be critical of all of them because i think there is some real opportunity here to use these spaces to create change and 
you know, I had used the term emancipatory innovation earlier in the hour. And I just think, you know, organizations that can really be centering social justice, those are the organizations that give me hope and that I think can be really supportive to young people just starting their careers who are looking, you know, for support, they're looking for networks, but at the same time, they want to feel, you know, like that they're the industry is moving in a direction where they, they hopefully won't need these networks one day that they will be inclusive and integrated in a way that that they won't need sort of that, that added support. One last question. I teach a lot of students who will go into the workforce in the tech industry. My hope is that in developing this conversation, this series of the podcast, engaging my students with your thinking and the thinking of the many others who have come on the show. In so doing, I'll help change the culture of tech ultimately, and that this next generation, as they start to enter the workforce, uh, will come emboldened and equipped with these ideas. What would you want them to know or understand or see or do or be aware of as they take their next step from college to their careers in industry? So I would say knowing that you're not alone and that there are people out there in this industry doing really good work and critical work to make the workplace better for the people working now and for the people of the future. I'd also say that you don't have to do it all yourself. You know, a lot of times when I mentor undergraduate students who are going off and graduating and working in tech companies or they have internships in tech companies, they're just super eager to get involved with these diversity initiatives. And, you know, I think I think as as junior workers, as young people, that sometimes letting letting the more experienced folks sort of take that responsibility, it's a lot of work and it can distract from the job that you actually have to do. You have to you do have to at the same time start your careers and you know, all of the normal things about impressing your manager and doing a job well done, that that doesn't go away. And so what we see a lot of the times is it's women, it's people of color that are doing like like what I said, this institutional housekeeping. And sometimes that's not rewarded or it can be kind of, um, you know, it could be sort of a risk early on in your career. And so what I had said earlier, you know, ask the right questions, you know, when you're interviewing for jobs, ask the right questions of your managers, challenge things, but maybe, you know, also encourage other folks around you to take the lead, take a step back and observe and soak things in um, before sort of getting your hands dirty yourself. You know, it's it's something that I struggle with, you know, st- just starting my career too. And I study higher education. I work in higher education. I want to fix higher education in a lot of ways. Uh, but having senior mentorship can be really crucial um, and sort of being the, the loud voice, amplifying some of those criticisms while sort of protecting my career too. So I think those would sort of be my two pieces of advice. Thank you so much, Ethel. Thank you. And this concludes season five of the Technically Human podcast. We'll be on hiatus for the next few weeks. Please stay tuned and join us for an exciting new season of the show when we return in the middle of July to bring you interviews with Silicon Valley writer Dan Lyons on satire, ethics, and tech culture, sociologist Dr. Anthony Hatch on biology, tech, and prisons, and many more exciting conversations. We'll see you in July.